the the issue wasn't me going to the NFL. It just goes all the way back to the first thing I told you was about education. I was graduating that year in four years on time. That was the only target I had. I never had a target to play football in the next level. I never was ever drawn to having to play the NFL. But when they came to me uh, in the avenue and asked me to run 40s and stuff, I said, what quarterbacks do you have run in 40s? You don't 40-yard dash for time. You don't have quarterbacks that. Well, so I don't want to play anything but quarterback. Well, that didn't work out, which now took me to Hamilton, which was a very refreshing aspect because I had a business opportunity that I could have taken, and they convinced me to go and play a little longer. So most people don't, are not aware that my choice was not NFL or die. It was sort of work and going to the lifestyle that I said my mother had projected to me about doing the right thing and raising your family and, and providing those things. But when I got this opportunity, I said, I'll give it four or five years. I'll, I'll try to play a little longer the game of football, period. On today's show, Chuck Ely, former quarterback in the Canadian Professional Football League, Grey Cup winner, and motivational speaker, here to talk about lessons learned throughout his amazing career as an athlete. While growing up in the projects of Portsmouth, Ohio, Chuck Ely realized very early in life that sport was the only vehicle that would help him rise above poverty and be the driving force that would lead him to getting an education. His mother, Earlene, was an influential figure in his life, and although she only had an 8th grade education herself, she instilled in Chuck a firm belief that staying in school would allow him to find a better life for himself and to provide for his own family one day in ways that she couldn't provide for him. Earlene taught Chuck many valuable lessons in life that would go on to serve him so well in the world. In his own words, she provided him with a strong sense of love and helped him to understand the power of connection, trust, respect, and having a vision. As a multi-sport athlete growing up, Chuck knew that it would be through sport that he would have the opportunity to further his schooling and he set out to find his own path to pursue both personal and professional excellence in his life. When Chuck reflects back on early days, he is filled with pride in knowing that he had surrounded himself with such a supportive community of athletes while growing up. A few of his pals would go on to play professional baseball, but Chuck's path led him in a completely different direction. One fateful day, while tearing it up on the basketball court in a high school match, a University of Toledo scout spotted him and recognized the enormous talent that he had. However, it wasn't a basketball recruiting scout, but instead a football scout. After that game, Chuck was offered a full-ride football scholarship as a quarterback at the University of Toledo and would amazingly go on to having an undefeated record of 35 straight wins which still stands today 
as the best in NCAA history among starting quarterbacks. What defines Chuck the most, however, is not his athletic accomplishments or becoming the first African-American quarterback to win a professional championship in football, but rather the life that he has led away from sport, getting a university education for himself and being the father, husband, and grandfather he is, as well the work he has done with his foundation, which inspires people to discover and embrace their undefeated spirit to better themselves and their community, one play at a time. Chuck Ely's life led him from America to Canada to pursue a dream of setting up a good life for himself and his family. He played professionally for seven seasons in the Canadian Professional Football League, winning one Grey Cup. As well, he passed for over 13,000 yards and 82 touchdowns in his career. The impact that he has had on the game inspired a generation of amazing quarterbacks such as Warren Moon, Damon Allen, Tracy Hamm, Condridge Holloway, and many more that followed in his footsteps. In 2012, a documentary was made about Chuck's life and journey. The documentary is called Stone Thrower, the Chuck Ely story, which highlights his battle with racial intolerance that led him to playing professional football in Canada, where he proudly remains to this day. You can find the documentary online as well. A link to it can be found in the show notes of this episode. Let's pick up the conversation with Chuck talking about the powerful impact that his mother had on his life from the time that he was young. Well, you know, my mother was only had an eighth grade education. And so that becomes the first sort of driving point that she instilled in me, how important it was because of what she could not do for me being limited that way. So my whole focus very early in my life was given to me by her to have the desire to finish school, uh, even though she didn't finish high school or any of that. I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do is, is to graduate from university. And as a very young kid, I, you know, looking back at it, I don't understand how I, I was instilled with that, but that's what drove me in, even in sport was not to go and play just sport, but to use it to, to get my education. So that's that one thing, the, the power of education and, and what are some of the other um, traits or strengths that you feel she passed down to you, like determination or those types <laughs> no, of things? No, no, no. She was a, she was an amazing lady with eighth grade education in, in her background. Uh, she instilled in me the avenue of love, uh, her passion for me, her passion for people, her passion for uh, being on the street and, 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 and being respectful within your community and with the people around you in all circumstances and situation. So in the backdrop of looking at as, as a kid, it, it, it looks a little bit different now that I now know what it was she was talking about mm. that instilled in me that I now had to pass on and into life I'm living now and what I lived in the past. And, you know, the one thing I really want to dive into here is obviously your life journey. And there's so much there to unpack but for the mm-hmm. sake of the listener, if we were to look at your life as being chapters in a book, okay? Okay. Um, what chapter headings would best organize your life story from a young age? So 
I, I gave you some examples before, like chapter yeah. one, overcoming failure, whatever it is. But what do you think the chapter headings would be that best kind of describe your your life journey? Oh, wow. I mean, that that, that is tough because so many, I mean, like uh, if I had to look at a chapter, I felt a sense of love, uh, you know, and that came very strongly from through my mother to not only me, to the people within the community we have. And and, and she taught me a great deal, deal about being respectful uh, as, a, as a chapter to other people in other people's lives. That's why some of the, the contradictions that happens in your life, you don't always see happen to you as I was supposed to do to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I tried to live my life by, by the very lessons she taught me about love and respect um, and, and, and courage to sort of go past what other people tell you what you can't do mm-hmm. uh, to, to believe in what you can do. And I think those were kind of the, the key components that I can look back at now uh, and what she instilled in me without anybody else having to know, uh, you know, it was just between her and I, because she was a single mom gu- guiding me through this whole process. And I was, I was um, with her as a single person, but with her, when I, since I was four, I never remember living with my dad because that, that marriage broke up before I could even sort of understand it. So the chapter, the first chapter would be a sense of love and kind of that, that idea of the power of human connection. What would, the, ne- yeah, what, what would the next chapter be as you, as you're kind of growing up and, and becoming more independent, I, you know, so I'm talking still elementary school, middle school, but what, what would the title of that chapter be? Do you think? Education. Okay. The importance of the importance of, of of me getting an education because using her own example of not having one, mm-hmm. how she felt that she could not provide um, all the things that I needed, not knowing that her love was what I needed and what I got. So uh, it drove me at a very early age, like any other kid. You have your you know fighting through school, learning through school, and she couldn't teach me a lot of the things that. You know, my wife teaches the kids when they were growing up about how to read and how to do certain things. I had to sort of work through that and drive through that process. And so sport became the vehicle for me to sort of how I move forward, both not only in the avenue of what I was doing in grade school, when I went to high school, but my, 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 I didn't know a lot about it, but I understood that I had to get my education through university. I, I, well, I didn't know what that was. I knew what I needed to get you know, get through. And so that drove me in sport. That actually drove me in sport. I said, how can I do this? I play football, basketball, baseball, I uh, play all these sports. How can I use that as a vehicle? Because there was no way that I could pay to go to school. Yeah. Education became the key component to driving me through the, through what, what has happened in my life. So I, I hear that chapter one is like that sense of love, human connection. Chapter two is about the power of education. Chapter three, I, I already get a sense that chapter three is sport as a vehicle, as you just yeah. described. Yeah. So so now if we dive into your athletic career, what what would, so still talking middle school, high school here, what would that fourth chapter title be? Uh, I, I think family. Okay. What was what was going to happen with me? Because I knew that that was going to be the next thing after 
education because I never even thought about playing professional football, to be quite honest with most people. It was never on the radar when I was a sophomore or, or junior or senior, even senior year, the only reason there. Mine was to be focused on how I got my education started, grew, have a family, uh, and making sure that my kids were going to be okay. So the, the the education component stayed with me and through that process. And, and so uh, football became sort of a secondary avenue, but, but yet it was still there. Yeah, and what I love right there is like you've brought it full circle back to a sense of love and connection. You know, right. so that idea of those values that your mom instilled in you you know, throughout your journey was the underlying kind of theme or thread that ran through your journey. So returning back to family, you know, absolutely. I mean, I think it it did that, that journey, uh, you know, now I've never had this kind of conversation before about it. So this is good that you bring it up. That, that journey was the underlying message of what my mother had because she could not provide the things that she needed to provide for me, even food in certain times that things are going on. And I knew that this is not the way I wanted my kids to have to go through mm. in any kind of situation that was going on, either in a, a lack of a marriage that didn't last or lack of providing substance and issues for my kids. So that education that she impounded in my brain mm-hmm. <laughs> to get done was always there in the backdrop and everything that I did. And so when I began to, um, go into that world where I was dating and, and, and looking for the right person with me in, in, in situations that would happen. Um, then that became sort of the, the real thing that she was always there. My mother was always there in the backdrop of every little thing. And I can see the things that are happening with my kids now that between my wife, Sherry and myself now see how we had built that, that loving component that's, that started from my mother. And, and in knowing Sky, your daughter, and, and yeah. Orlando and their boys, you know, yeah. I, I met their boys for the first time probably 15, 10 years ago, maybe, uh, roughly. But just okay. to see them grow and yeah. to see them do, you know, you got music there, you got sport, you have, you know, yeah. you can see such a strong sense of family values there that you have obviously passed down to Sky and, and yeah. she has instilled in her children as well, which is beautiful to see. Right. Um, what was your mom's name? Earlene. Earlene? Earlene, E-A-R-L-I-N-E. What she was kind of named after her dad. And her dad's name was Earl, so Earlene oh, okay. was her, her okay. name. Okay. So what, what do you feel, if she could speak to you right now, what do you feel she would be most proud of in you? Oh, I mean, she's just proud of me, period. You know, if you had to sort of stop, but I think she would be very proud. She was very proud of the fact that I did get my education, that, that I did go that extra mile. But she was also proud of the sport because, you know, it was even when I was in high school, you know, she couldn't even get to the high school games because she didn't have a car and physically she wasn't able to get there uh, in many times. So she didn't really see me play any football until she came to probably my second, my last game of ever playing when they invite the parents in uh, to come and see the game. So she heard, she listened on the radio, she listened to all the information, she got all the news uh, and was very, very proud of what was happening in my life. And and that's the one comfort zone where you could go home, you know you were home with mom. You weren't home being recognized as a super athlete, but uh, the kid that uh, that she wanted me to be. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. And so let's dive right into your life as an athlete now. So when that, you know, what we've just talked about really helps to set the frame for the rest of the conversation and early days for you and, and what you learned in those early days. But I really want to talk about the role of sport in your life from a young age. And and for me, and I, I've shared my TED talk with you and, and I shared the powerful role that sport played in my life and in helping me to overcome a dysfunctional family environment and, and drug addiction and depression and, and sport gave me that singular focus and, and gave me purpose and meant so much to me. And when you think of yourself as an athlete, can you share some early experiences in sports? So this is not maybe necessarily football, but just some early experiences in sport that really helped to define you to know that something special existed within you? Well, first of all, I never think anything was as special with in me. I would just go. Uh, but I will say this, where we grew up in the community in Southern Ohio, in Portsmouth, Ohio, where I grew up, sport was our outlet. It was our freedom. You got to remember what was happening in the social world at that time, civil rights and all the movements are going on. And we lived in a community where all the black people lived in the same area and go outside that area could be almost dangerous sometimes when you, when you, you're scoping. So we gathered together in the park. I lived in the projects and in the park is where everything happened. You would go out on the weekends and we could play, especially we would play football, basketball, baseball, all in the same day. And we would compete and challenge each other. Uh, I played with guys, and I'll mention these names, Larry Heisel, who was a professional baseball player, Al Oliver, who's a professional baseball player as well. As many other, the other within the community, we had a really good sports group. And the whole point was to compete and challenge each other to be the best that we possibly could be. And uh, my dri- driving factor was to get learn how to do, be like Larry or Al or some of the other uh, top athletes in the community so that I can reach the next level and, and, and get a scholarship. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking in my own head now how much I was already headed to this educational thing and using sport as the vehicle because I couldn't pay. I'm thinking, you know, there's been times I thought of us, how did you do this so young? I said, because my mother and, and her commitment to me to think about education and being sure that I got it and watch what it happens when you come home with no food. And how I did not want that to happen to my kids and my family as I grew up. And education was the other thing. Sport, from a professional level, was not even on the card. It was never in that card at that point. But that's what happened with us in our community. So it was that idea of it just just sounds like such a um, supportive environment in terms of like gathering to play sport, as you described, playing pickup games and and learning um, about sport through human connection, again, through social uh, relationships, through these important things that help to, to shape and guide you. And I'm interested to know your quarterback story now, because for me growing up, like I found, remember Archie Manning, the quarterback of the, yeah. yeah. So I remember I found football by literally finding a book about him winning the Heisman Trophy Award and I read the book and I was not a reader at all when I was a kid, mm-hmm. but suddenly in the library, I found this book and I must've been in grade five, I think. And I yeah. read this story and then suddenly I wanted to learn as much as I could about football. 
And, right. and from that day forward, I became the, the biggest Detroit Lions fan, uh, Billy, <laughs> Billy, Billy Sims days. Um, yeah. But I became a huge Detroit Lions fan and then devoured as many books as I could about football. But right. I wanted to become a pro quarterback and a punter. So I literally, every day from the time I was in grade five all the way through college, I threw and punted a football every single day. And I had this yeah. sidearm style throw this kind of, they called me yeah. hung, Hungarian gunslinger because <laughs> I would throw it, pull it out of my holster and just zing it downfield. Yeah. I couldn't throw over the top. My coaches yeah. would try to get okay. me to throw over the top, but I couldn't. So yeah. let's return to your story now and the spark and motivation for you to become a quarterback and how you learned to throw and how yeah. you how you learned about the quarterback position? Let's just start there. Well, it was very interesting because you, 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 nobody's really asked some of these questions. So thank you for that. When I started out, they used to call me halfback because I would be a running back in in the park, you know, kind of idea. Um, and then it sort of sort of elevated to what I would do as I moved forward, and it sort of sort of gravitated to the avenue of playing quarterback as I moved into this next person, more so to control the ball with the running. But I wanted to be get better at being able to throw a football and timing. And so you couldn't always get people to practice. And my daughter did the book and a little of the story called The Stone Thrower yeah. because I told her, explained to her that what I used to do, we have a train track that ran through part of the town and what I would used to do is go up on the railroad track that came through right through the part of our town uh, that had these boulders that uplifted the tracks. Yeah. And so I would go back and grab a boulder and it would be coal cars. I mean, cars that pulled coal, not people cars. Yeah. <laughs> and I would try to explain. And I would try to aim at the N and W that was on the train, Norfolk and Western Railroad. That's what was it, the railroad train that came by. I always remember it. And I would try to time it out because it would come through slow and then it would pick up speed. Uh, and so I could learn how to time and hit the N or hit the W, whatever the target was, uh, so that I could sort of learn how to throw the ball to a person when I'm getting a chance to practice and, and do that. And even in high school, we didn't throw a lot. But at the same time, the athletic ability allowed me to be able to do that and run with the ball as well. Yeah. And what I love about that is, you know, I come from a physical education and health background and the teaching that I've done and the research that I've done and the presenting that I do is all about delivering physical education in a different way that yep. allows kids to find their own entry point to learning and then to inspire them to be physically active. And if I can do that as a physical educator, then yep. motor competence, the skills will take care of themselves because they're intrinsically motivated. So then I can become a facilitator and a coach and just to help guide them. So right. that's very much how I learned to throw. I had nobody teaching me how to throw and I just kind of figured right. it out. I didn't need anybody teaching me about weight transfer. I didn't need yeah. anybody teaching me a release point. I just figured right. it out. Right. Yeah. So through, through, through that experience, when you were throwing the boulders at the N and the W, you obviously weren't thinking about weight transfer. You were thinking you were target oriented, right? Yes. So yes. talk more about, so you were specifically doing that to build your quarterback skills. Yeah. Yeah. I was so, doing it more to, to understand the timing. Okay. You know, when people play you, you, as a quarterback, you understand when you, when you anticipate where a receiver is going to be, you have to sort of throw at that target based off of the speed, based off of the distance and all those type of parameters that you would use. But you didn't think that way as a scientific way. 
Right. You just understood that if I hit that in time, I'll know this position that I need to be at to hit that spot and, and, and hit it hit it in a way it was moving. And you know the speed will change based on the type of pattern a person would be running and those type of things. When I was in grade eight, nine, and ten going up through that that zone, that's what I would do. And most of the time it came when I was in high school because we didn't throw a lot, but I always wanted to be able to throw on timing and stuff. And I would do that to sort of time out. Okay, train's coming. I don't have any place to go. I got to wait before I go across the track until it goes by. So I would end up going at the train, and that's yeah. where that story came through. Awesome. awesome. And how far? In, in just out of curiosity here, when you were in early high school, your high school days, how far did you throw the ball? If you really tried to air it out, I I, I really don't know uh, the distance, and I think that's one of the things about playing quarterback. I think your body will do what it needs to be done, yeah. or you can when you time it. But I would say, you know, uh, 40, 50 yards when you're starting early at least. And, yeah. and then by the time I was, you know, in pro, I mean, I would think, and, and you, if you sit there and say, I want to throw it 70 yards, you don't think that you're going to throw it 70 yards. But if you sit there and think and you have a receiver running, you know, if you do it, you would, you could probably get 60 or 70 yards because yeah, you, yeah. you're focusing on yeah. making sure that goes. Yeah. So, you know, there was never a time when I sort of, sort of knew what the exact distance was, uh, you know, and, yeah. uh, so, but at the same time, you, you did what had to be done and yeah. reached where you had to go. Yeah, for sure. So describe your playing style. So you started off as a halfback mm-hmm. kind of in the park, you became a quarterback to control the ball more, that idea of just having more control over the offense. So describe, oh, okay. describe that's your that's early, that's yeah, describe your early playing style. Early issue was this. My high school coach was like the Ohio State of Woody Hayes thing, three yards in a cloud of dust. So we had a backfield, full house backfield that ran most of the time. The, the, one of the reasons why I didn't get drafted by me, probably by a lot of people, a number of schools, is because I didn't throw as much as many high school kids did. But when I did, it was effective. We got it done. We didn't have to. Uh, so, you know, so I didn't throw a lot during the game. Our game was based off of handoff rush option where you make a choice where, and I ran a lot more than most high school kids because I didn't pass a lot. So that prohibited some of the, the discussions about me playing quarterback. Now, what happened is the university I ended up going to in Toledo, the coach came down to see me play, and he saw me play basketball, yeah. the assistant coach. And it, I was recruited because what happened during the game, I think I scored 30 points and shot the last basket for to win the game. And he said, okay, we're going to sign him up. They signed me up more as an athlete that could play quarterback. So, so let's understand the progression here mm-hmm. was the fact that I was athletic, could play running back, could play defensive back, possibly quarterback. The teams that, that I wanted to go to, Ohio University and Miami of Ohio, because of the proximity of our home, uh, didn't want to take me as a quarterback. And I wanted to go as a quarterback. Yeah. So when they told me in Toledo, that's where I ended up going because they gave me that chance, not knowing how the competition was <laughs> in that type of area, but at least they said you could. And it gave me the chance to try to play in that spot. I had the skill set, but, but not necessarily the opportunity. Right. More of a option quarterback in high school, which would help to set up the pass, right? Right. Right. It would help to set up the run because we had good running backs and good athletes and there. So it was that combination of 
either they kept it or I kept the ball and ran and then threw when I had to throw. Uh, it wasn't like you're trying to throw on first down all the time and yet it, it was like, boom, that's where you were. Which is interesting about the Canadian league because the Canadian league, you got to throw a lot more on first down. So right. we'll get into that later. But yep. um, when you got the full ride scholarship to Toledo, which was four hours from Portsmouth, right? Right. So about you that. got the, the full ride to Toledo. Um, describe your role in that offense. So you, you, did you start at, you didn't start at quarterback in the, in your first year, but then you became the starting quarterback or can you just give no, us no, some no. clarity? What on? happens is at that time, there's as a freshman in your first year there, that season is kind of like a preparatory season. You wouldn't play all four seasons like you can now. Right. Okay? So you're right. So I could not play on the varsity or what we could see the seniors from sophomore to their senior year. So it was sort of a, a stepping stone preparing yourself to go okay. to the next year. So in that year, we had three or four quarterbacks. All of them were, were pretty talented. And they were running me. And somebody, one of the other defensive coaches, wanted me to play defensive back, and et cetera. Um, and one of the other quarterbacks got injured. And so I ended up taking up the whole role uh, as quarterback and started developing the throw more in that, in that context. Not because I was... If I, would, if I would play in high school and we ran 10 plays, I might throw two passes. If we ran 10 plays in, in there, I might throw four to six passes, you know, in, in, in that context. So there was a different transition of moving into that, that role of being able to be a running quarterback that could throw the ball. And that basically was how it plays. So when you became the starting quarterback at Toledo, so now you go 35 and 0, which is incredible, <laughs> right? Yeah. So we're talking 27 games in high school straight uh, without a loss and then 35 in a row. So 62 and 0. So well, just, well, you know, I, I always want to fix this, that story a little bit. I didn't start my first year in high school. Okay. Right. As, as quarterback, I started. So I technically was 18 plus whatever I did in university but I was on the team that did basically that. So I, I, I moved in, in my high school and took over for one of the seniors who was the quarterback was undefeated the year before, but the coach moved him to a tight end and put me back in the quarterback for the next two years. And oh, that nice. kind of idea. So right. none of us kind of knew the story that would be, be happened, but yeah. that's what took place. That's how it took place. So I went with those 18 and then I took a, a sort of a rest break where we had that, freshman year where you do, you play some games, but you don't necessarily, um, they, they're not countable games yeah, because yeah, they're just sure. sort of like scrimmage games, but, yeah. but, but you try to get prepared for next year. And we did lose one during that year too, by the way, mm -hmm. but that, that wasn't in the calculation. The calculation started from my sophomore year to my senior year. That was right. 35 uh, games. And a couple of years later, they start allowing freshmen to play uh, in four years versus right. three. So, so describe, so when you became starting quarterback in your sophomore year at Toledo, now I want you to describe the, the offense. So was the offense originally built around you or did the offense evolve to being built around you and your talents? I think, I think there was, there were elements of that that was already there, but I think they, it evolved, evolved on the aspects of the mobility that I had there because the quarterback that played the year before I got there was still there and he had some mobility as well. And so they had utilized that in certain things. And it wasn't until the spring before I started my my sophomore year 
that I won the position between the two of us mm-hmm. in regards to it. And some of the elements were there, but the more I got to play, the more it began to expand to take advantage of the ability of run pass position as a, as a quarterback. So were you allowed the freedom you know, when I think of Doug, Doug Flutie was an early kind of yeah. role model of mine because yeah, I'm, no five, yeah. I'm five, I'm ten. So I would always scramble. I did not like to stay in the pocket. <laughs> right. Um, so I like to scramble and just make stuff happen. Right. Yep. So describe, because when I see you have a very classic drop back style, you know, it's not a crossover style where you're looking at only at one side of the field. You, you drive right. straight back very, very quickly. Right. Mm-hmm. And that right. was, that was the day before the shotgun. There really wasn't shotgun formation no, then, right? No, yeah, it wasn't. We weren't doing the shotgun there. But you got back so quick, you know, yeah. such quick feet to get back. So you're talking like you would get the snap of the ball, then you'd be dropped back to like seven to nine yards and then describe the flexibility and freedom to um, innovate and improvise. Was that extended to you or did you have a very rigid um, play set that you called from? Well, it's very interesting because I think most coaches, the danger coaches get into is that taking someone with athletic ability and try to make them a strong back quarterback. Uh, they understood what I had. And while we still had to drop that back kind of positioning for those who, who may not understand what we're talking about, staying in the, in the grasp of one set thing, they gave me the freedom to be able to, make up plays in regards to what I would do and how I would respond. And, and because we did get the results from those, I mean, they had no argument with it. They constantly began to find a run an option play where I would pitch it or keep it. Uh, then we would do something where I would spread out to one side versus staying in the pocket. Mm-hmm. So those changes formatted what happens, even though most people don't know all the technical side, like you would know when asking the questions, they only see the results and the coaches felt the same way. They said, okay, we're not going to try to harness this guy to be the drop back quarterback and stay right there in the pocket. We're going to let him generate what goes on there. Um, and that's the way I sense it now as I'm looking back to how Frank Lauderbur and then Jack Murphy um, had to, to let it go. Uh, I remember one time in my senior year, and I'll use an example, uh, you know, Jack Murphy took over from Frank Lauderbur and, and the senior Frank had gone and we were two years undefeated and, and Jack just put, passed away, but he was a little, now he's a head coach of the two team of a team that's been undefeated for two years. And and now he's got pressure on him because if we lose, he's in trouble. And in one game we were in uh, and he sent in the play and I kind of monkeyed with the play. And I told you guys do this. I'll do this because we were tied at seven, seven. And I go the opposite way I'm supposed to go. And, you know, anyway, I connected the pass and we got to kick the field goal and won 10 to 7. So, you know, versus chastising me, obviously, you know, it was kind of one of those things, well, what happened there? I said, I changed the play. He said, okay, <laughs> you run it then. And so we got it and then done it. But, but that was the respect that they gave me based on what had taken place uh, in, the, in the previous, you know, games. And we went on from there uh, to win the way we had. And that was the first or second game of a, of a senior year and that we were almost in trouble (laughs) to lose or tie at the end of the game. Yeah. That's great to have that freedom there and to know that you have that freedom to improvise and innovate. And that, that leads to um, 
confidence, like really the ability to be confident because you are literally, uh, it's kind of like that blank slate every I, there's an expression every day is an opportunity to create a living masterpiece. And I yeah. love that. I love that, um, expression, but really in your case, every snap was an opportunity to create greatness, yeah. you know, and yeah. that frees you up in your body and mind to just, you know, um, uh, tap into your athleticism and to see the field and to make things happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, that was the, the, the avenue of, of freedom that we have. And I, uh, I'll tell you a quick short story sure. in regards to my first year in the Tangerine Bowl. Uh, there was a bowl game after we won our, our conference. And that week I was dreaming and I had dreaming. I was thinking I was going just, and then what, what it was, it was a play. And I remember like today it was called 19 option, which means I would run to the left and I would pay with the, the, the person on the end and make that person ready to tackle me, choose to take me or choose to take the running back. Yeah. My dream was that I would run this thing for 50 yards and a touchdown. I would keep it to do it. So second play of the game or third play, I don't know what it was. Coach sends in a 19 option. Now, I'm not thinking anything. You know, I'm just 19 option. I'm functioning just like the person. I go down the line and boom, fake the pitch, ran it for 53 yards and a touchdown. And I told people, I didn't tell anybody this for a long time because it was too spooky. You know, it was really weird that that would happen the way the visualization took place in the dream. That didn't happen every time. That was the only time that that happened. But I was kind of a little scared. You know, when, people, when you get the first touchdown, people jump on top of you and think, yeah, I'm thinking, wow, this is weird. I can't believe it. And I didn't tell anybody for a few years that that happened because it was kind of scary to my head. Yeah. But uh, it, it, it happened that way. And, and, you know, it's those kind of things where mentally you're preparing so much that these things and thought processes come to on the past, and that was one. Well, when you think about sports psychology now, right? So if we were just to go a little off the tracks here towards sports psychology, back then there was no such thing. And and I, I'm, I have taken a, um, a, a course from the Seattle Seahawks sports psychologist, uh, Dr. Michael Gervais. Um, yeah. Have you ever heard of Dr. Michael Gervais? Yeah, I heard that name, but yeah. yeah. So yeah. He, he works closely with Pete Carroll, uh, the head yeah. coach for Seattle and they created this uh, peak performance course called um, compete to create. I'll yeah. send you the, I'll send you the links and mm-hmm. they do a lot of obviously work around visualization and mindfulness as an athlete to prepare for competition and visualization is a huge part of what they instill in their athletes. But this is not classic visualization where you're visualizing um, the perfect game uh, right. probably 60% of the time you're visualizing your position and success within your position. But 40% of the time you're visualizing um, obstacles. So you're visualizing, if you're a quarterback, you're uh, visualizing the pocket breaking down, being in the mm-hmm. grasp of a defensive end, spinning out of it. Like, how are you going to recover? So you're yeah. visualizing recovery. And you're also visualizing if you throw a pick that's run back for a touchdown, you actually visualize throwing a pick that's uh, run back for a touchdown, but how you're going to step up to the, to the next snap, receive that next snap and still be productive, not be overwhelmed with uh, anxiety and fear because you've just thrown a pick. So it's visualizing everything, not just success. So you just talked about your dream there. 
So obviously your subconscious was working in a way that you were always analyzing the game and analyzing your performance and thinking about what's possible. But did you employ any, even back then, did you employ any kind of visualization or anything? uh, uh, Absolutely. I mean, I I think that uh, one of the avenues is that uh, I'm a firm believer that mentally you have to be involved with the game more so than physically. I think physically you could do it, but thinking about the play, what play will work? Uh, what do I see in my head that I'm going to see in the game? And sometimes it changes. That's why you have audibles, but, but for the format before the game, that's how I think most athletes live. I don't, I don't know who doesn't sit down there and they're focused, whether they're in the locker room or whether it's the night before or the week before uh, the good ones will constantly be thinking about what their function is on that play, what they might see, how they get by. The film helps, but inside your head, you look at that and you say, okay, now you're looking at another person's film and you say, okay, this is me on the field, even though I'm looking at another game film or somebody else, what am I going to do? How am I going to see it? And then, then you take it home with you when you're sleeping or you're laying down and you think about it. That's how the, I believe the successful ones continually become successful because they're living the game. I, you know, like I tell people, uh, you know, they ask me, he said, I played that game three or four times already this week before I actually get on the field. And, and that's basically how, how you sort of instinctively live as a sports athlete. It's not just that the, what everybody sees on that day. It's, it's what you've done all week within your own mindset. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes total sense. And just that mental preparation. And I want to yeah. talk about your senior year in, in college before we transition into um, talking about the CFL and, and your, light, your, your journey to Canada, really. Right. Um, but I think of Roger Maris, 1961, 61 home runs. You know, he, he set the record. And I remember reading his life story. And when he was on his home run, kind of um, the run, during the year, right. just one home run after another. And then he kind of hit a slump and he was in position to break the record, but then he hit this massive slump. So the record became in doubt. And to him, he was consumed by breaking the record, by right. hitting 61 home runs and breaking the record. Well, he ultimately broke the record, but the physical toll it had on his body was overwhelming. He described right. like losing his hair that year, anxiety, <laughs> overwhelming anxiety so in his head there was this tremendous pressure to break the record well he Mm -hmm. obviously did it but as i said there was a physical toll on his body as you approached your uh the end of your senior year knowing that you were undefeated Mm -hmm. can you talk about or help us frame up the pressure maybe you didn't put pressure on yourself but just talk about that experience as you were closing in towards your final win, just talk about what that experience was like, what pressure was like, where your mindset was at, and just take us through that experience. Well, you know, as you get into the senior year, people have always asked these questions here, very similar to yours, and even more so. Um, I'll tell you what the end part was. When we were playing our last home game, one of my teammates, Steve Banks, and Steve may not even remember this, I said to Steve, I said, I don't think we know what we've done here. And we had one more game to play with the bowl game, but I wasn't worried about the bowl game as far as thinking about it. I was just thinking about, kind of amazed at what we just did. But, but, but to go back to what you said, there was never a time was I thinking about the streak. 
there was never a time that I was thinking about we, if we don't win this game, oh, it's going to be broken or anything like that. Uh, that game was over and, was, and people kind of go, really, Chuck? I said, really? I said, uh, the, the focal point was I didn't expect to win or, you know, or lose a game. So I played the game as I moved on. And then that was finished. So now I'm focusing on the next game. And all of a sudden, you know, we're here. And when I have that statement with Steve, we're, 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 all of a sudden we're here, I, you know, because I think you could put a lot of pressure, even when it, there were games where we were close to losing or close to doing something where the defense would pick us up uh, when the office wasn't doing together or vice versa. Uh, and so as a team, we all gel to that. They could talk about the, 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 what's coming up and we can't lose this game. Or I think we were down against Western Michigan, I think 24 to seven at halftime and we came back and won the game. And, you know, people, I mean, even Christine Brennan, who was one of the fans at the time as a sports writer, was kind of thinking that this is going to be over, you know, at different times where the streak is going to be broken and stuff. I wasn't thinking that way. And so, uh, and we do a thing with the foundation that I'm working and talking about under the spirit, one play at a time, one movement at a time, and you let the rest take past that next point. Uh, so that when we did get there and we're at the end there, we're going, wow, this is, this is, this is incredible. I could appreciate it once I was there, but uh, at the same time, I was just, you know, trudging along. And, and I don't think, if I'm honest with myself and I am, I don't think there was one time I was thinking about what if we lose and lose the streak and never, and never enter into the equation in my thought process, either when we were behind or whatever, if we did was part of the game or no, no one could dream. I didn't dream being 35 and all. It just ended up happening. Yeah, I love that. And what you just described, so I want to return back to the Compete to Create course by Dr. Michael Gervais and Pete Carroll. And what they talk about is the ability to perform is based on your ability to be in the present moment and not to right. ruminate about the past or to project into the future. And you right. very eloquently just summed that up in a nutshell yeah. about being in the present moment at all times. It wasn't about the streak. It wasn't about the last game. It wasn't about being down 24 to six at halftime. It was yeah. about what you can control by stitching together present moment after present moment and being in the present. Right. And, and you know, uh, all the scientific stuff and people know about other stuff, I had no idea what that was all about, you know, when I was, when I was playing or where you're going, it, it was the, the, the focal point of what you could control. And, and, and that's when I, I, when I talk to young kids and other people about it, it's, it's about what you have at your disposal at this time, not what happened you through an interception, yeah. not what you think you might throw a pass. It is what you do at that moment. And, and that's why we, I, I talk about the undefeated spirit about where you just, it is, it's an attitude that you won't quit and that you will continually press on to the circumstances that's in front of you and, and deal with it and then deal with all the other stuff after the fact, if you have to. Yeah. Yeah. That's so well put and such a valuable life skill for, for everybody, not just young people, but anybody yeah. living their life pursuing excellence to yeah. remain in the present moment and to cherish the present moment for what it is, because that's, what's going to bring out your very best. 
That's right. And yes, yeah. that's that's the only only thing you can control is that moment. Yeah. You can't control what happened back, and you can't control what might happen in the future. Yeah. The only thing that you can handle is right there, yeah. and and you do the best you can with it, and then you regroup. Yeah. So um, I I want to transition into the Canadian game now. So yeah. you weren't drafted in the NFL, which still, yeah. when I watched your documentary, <laughs> The Stone Thrower, and it just obviously you know rough times back then with what was happening, but that idea that you held firm and fast to, I am a quarterback. I'm not going to, you could have been drafted as a DB in the NFL or Mm -hmm. maybe a receiver, but, but you held true to your position and and your skills and your talents and and what you possess. And so you weren't drafted by the NFL, but then you got drafted by the Hamilton tiger cats of the CFL. And, and that's a beautiful story in itself. And that's ultimately what led to you setting up life in Canada, you know, to this day, but I have for you, and I've already said this, uh, I had a couple uh, weeks ago, I, I had a guest on the show, Dr. Jim Knight, uh, he's a researcher and a lecturer um, from uh, University of Kansas. So he right. grew up as a Canadian, a massive CFL fan, and he was at your 1972 Grey Cup game. So I've asked Jim to uh, record an audio clip about that experience, um, being a <laughs> Hamilton Tiger Cat fan. So I'm going to play it right now. We're going to listen to the whole clip, and then I'm going to have a question for you about um, your CFL experience, okay? So just okay. give me a, th- a thumbs up, Chuck, if you can hear his voice loud okay. and clear when I play it. I grew up on a farm about 20 miles out of Hamilton. And in our family, cheering for the Hamilton Tiger Cats was a pretty big deal. Uh, We would stop everything to listen to the games on the radio if it was an away game. And listen to the fifth quarter, which was the talk show afterwards, and dissect the games. And we took it pretty seriously. I remember Mom, in more than one time, in tears because Hamilton hadn't won. We sort of analyze every aspect of every game, not just us, but people in our community. And in our family, we were fortunate that we had season tickets. It was kind of the big thing. And uh, if the weather was cold or it was rainy, um, I got to go to the games with my dad. And if it was a nice day, mom would go with dad. And we watched Hamilton for many years. And this was kind of the heyday of the team. I remember Bernie Filoni as quarterback and... uh, Garney Henley and Tommy Joe Coffey, who was kind of a multi-purpose player, kicked a lot of field goals. I scored a lot of points, I think, at the time. He set the record for most points. And then, of course, John Barrow and Angela Mosca were the linemen, which made the team kind of famous. They were the spirit of the Steel Town team. And Chuck Ely came along as quarterback, and we'd always needed a quarterback ever since Bernie Filoni retired. And... Uh, it was a pretty amazing thing. Now, as a kid in high school, uh, we just loved watching him play because he seemed like he had magic to him. He could—he was fantastic at breaking out of the tackles. Uh, the CFL requires um, quarterbacks who can move and run, and he did all those things. And he got on a winning streak, and it was like the Tiger Cats couldn't lose. And that year... The Grey Cup, which is the Super Bowl of the Canadian Football League, was in Hamilton, and Chuck Ely was the quarterback for Hamilton, 
And so my parents had season tickets because they had season tickets. I was able to get uh, to go because my dad generously, I know he would have loved to have gone, but he said, why don't you go? And so a friend of mine and I went and we sat in the end zone, watched the game. The whole Grey Cup was a huge deal in Hamilton. So we went down a couple days before the game. And then at the game, uh, of course, eventually, on the last play of the game, Hamilton won 13 to 10. Um, we were playing Saskatchewan, the big green machine. Ron Lancaster was the quarterback for Saskatchewan. He was a fantastic tactician and a great, great quarterback. But we came through and won, and the whole city just erupted kind of in joy when they won. But it was really all about Chuck Ely because he came to the team and that year in particular he could do no wrong and it was like like I said it was like magic he was able to escape tackles he was able to run he was able to complete plays and they won game after game after game it was a wonderful run it's great to watch him play it was a real celebration in our family and in the whole community of Hamilton and that's kind of my recollection of uh, Chuck Ely and the Hamilton Tiger Cats so having, having heard that uh, audio clip, Chuck, um, and really understanding the perspective of a hardcore Thai Cat fan who grew up loving the Thai Cats, who um, was at your Grey Cup game, um, yeah. can you just talk about that transition to the CFL first before we get into the, your Grey Cup, but talk about the transition to the CFL and how you made that transition to the CFL game because it, it's a distinct difference, the American and Canadian game with all of the motion, yep. the bigger field, uh, only three downs versus four downs. So just first of all, talk about the transition, how you were welcomed, anything you want the listeners to understand about that experience. Well, see, I mean, we kind of jumped a big gap. That's very important. Yeah. When they get drafted to the NFL, the, the issue wasn't me going to the NFL. Just goes all the way back to the first thing I told you was about education. I was graduating that year in four years on time. That was the only target I had. I never had a target to play football in the next level. I never was ever drawn to having to play the NFL. But when they came to me uh, in the avenue and asked me to run 40s and stuff, I said, what quarterbacks do you have run in 40s? You don't 40-yard dash for time. You don't have quarterbacks that well so I don't want to play anything but quarterback well that didn't work out which now took me to Hamilton which was a very refreshing aspect because I had a business opportunity that I could have taken and they convinced me to go and play a little longer so most people don't are not aware that my choice was not NFL or die it was sort of work and going to the lifestyle that I said my mother had projected to me about doing the right thing and raising your family and and providing those things. But when I got this opportunity, I said, I'll give it four or five years. I'll, I'll try to play a little longer the game of football period. Uh, so, so when I hear somebody like that speak about what my activity provided for them personally on the field, I am thrilled. The Hamilton fans and this fan was, they're just were delightful to, to be there and see how enthusiastic they were about the game and about the situation. And, and he exemplifies what the heart of many of the people have in the, in the families, because it seemed like when I got there in Hamilton, there was a rooting between the kids who were five and the parents who were 55. 
or grandparents or family was there. And this is basically how, you know, it's projected in regards to him. And I really appreciate, you know, what he said and how he felt his family. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And, uh, he was, he was thrilled to be able to create that audio clip for you to share his experience. And when you made that journey up now, let's, let's dive into the Canadian game. So you're talking it, you're going from a field that is 100 yards from end, end zone to end zone to a field that's 110 yards from end zone to end zone with 20, 20 yard end zones. I think the Canadian yeah. Canadian league, 65 yards wide. It's a massive field and you have crappy weather. And, it, and yeah. you're passing so much more. So, yeah. so just talk about um, the skills that you possess that absolutely suited the game, first yeah. of all. Uh, but just yeah. talk about that initial experience and maybe your mindset going into that experience. Well, you know, it was, it was really interesting. But the, the, the problem was, as a quarterback, moving the hardest part was moving from a, a three-down playing down to a two-down playing down mm-hmm. before you had to punt, you know, kind of idea. That was the hardest adjustment for me. From the sides of the field, from side to side, when you do the two extra people on there on offense and defense, you sort of equalize some of that, that area of that, that concept. Uh, so that wasn't so hard. It was more, for me, the most difficult part was making the play calls. Uh, getting used to running a lot more or passing a lot more in first down, uh, trying to pick up enough yardage to get the first down. Uh, that transition was the hardest part. But my mobility gave me a little better avenue to work with because if it was second and, 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 and four or five, I could roll out and make an option of whether to run or pass, mm. you know, based off of what happened. So it project, my, my, how do you say, my physical abilities gave me some help to adjust to time over the play calling that needed to be done as you get adjusted from working with four downs to three downs. And so that was probably the the biggest transition for me. And were you at the time, again, were you going back to that same playing style of, of scrambling and improvising and, and having that flexibility to innovate and create, or were you more bound to the play calling? Well, the, 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 the fortunate thing for me, once I moved into the starting position, because I didn't start the first couple of games, Coach Williams, who was Jerry Williams at the time, knew how to design plays to get me back and get me out to the outside. Mm-hmm. So we had special plays that were meant for me to have to be out there with the option to run pass versus trying to keep you into a pocket and throw the ball from that zone. That gave me a lot of freedom. That, that's what helped our team in this particular year. And as we went on, the mobility that uh, created this for me to be able to put pressure on the defense, because like now the wider field gets expanded a little more when you start uh, to move and uh, get some freedom out there. And so Coach Williams trained to that. He taught to that. He coached to that, I should say, and uh, which made it easier for us that first year when we were in hell. And you go out and you win 13 games and win the Grey yeah, Cup. So the Grey Cup, uh, I think it was uh, 13-10, right? Yeah. Yeah, 13-10. Yeah. That feel good, 13-10. Yeah. But it was a game. If you look at the score, you would think not much happened. But there, the ball was moving up and down the yeah. field. That that whole game, it, it just score was just low. Uh, somebody would come up on the defense with an interception or somebody would do something, you know, outstanding that, that made the game a very interesting game for 13-10. to 10 all the way through through the whole game. 
Yeah. And MVP as well of the game, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know when I watched the documentary I saw, cause they still, to this day, they, they give a car to the yeah. MVP and they, I didn't know that it started way back then as well. Yeah. So you were yeah. given, you were given a, a car, the keys yeah. to a new a car, car. <laughs> being, being at the MVP. So, um, when that's you, cool. when you think about your CFL career, so you played for three teams, you played for, mm-hmm. Uh, Winnipeg, uh, Hamilton, Winnipeg, and Toronto. You finished in yeah. Toronto. Yeah. And you, you talk about, so now let's, let's dive into, you know, obviously there's so much to your CFL career, but I think you're defined more by the person you became after your career. And, yeah. um, and I think in your documentary, you said in your head, you know, you only wanted to play seven or eight years. And I think you know, I was only actually it was actually five. Uh, I only wanted to play five and I ended up playing seven. I uh, was asked to go back in and play some more. Go back. I had a chance to go back to Hamilton and, and uh, uh, when the new coach came to Toronto that year. And I, I said, uh, no, uh, I think I'm, I'm, I've, I've had enough. I, I, I was more interested now in spending time with my family and what I would call living the normal life, <laughs> you know, kind of idea without having to, to do all of that. So I was ready. He says, you know, once you start thinking about retiring, it's time to retire. You don't keep pushing past that thread. And once my head went into that zone, I knew it was time for me to, to, to end that career and, and stop. And going back to the first chapter of your life, sense of love and connection and family mm-hmm. and, and everything that the game gave you, um, you know, you were, you were in a position to move on to the next chapter of your life. And, mm-hmm. you know, many professional athletes go down in flames after their career because mm-hmm. who they are as a person is so closely connected with who they are as an athlete, their self-identity. There's, there's no separation between the two. And we've seen so many stories of, of people just going down in flames, um, when they have such a hard time to adjusting to life after their professional career. So for you, how are you able to separate that and to move forward in your life in proactive ways and to continue to do great work? So can you just kind of describe how you were able to learn to say goodbye to your professional career in a healthy way? It's it's strange that you would say that because it always goes back to my mother it always go back to my mother in education. And my education was to sort of say that at least at the time, African-American kids, in most cases of time growing up at that point, did not have that opportunity that I had. And I was ready to sort of live a life outside of sport. When you start playing sport from the time you're in grade one and you've gone through all these transitions, for me, the time was running out for that. And so I look forward to the day that I could go fishing or golfing or doing some of the other things because every year to this point is training and getting ready for it, playing and then training and playing every year. And so some people could keep doing that. I was not prepared to keep doing that. And so uh, when I said that I wanted to get my degree, I wanted to make sure that I got it in four years, not five years, that I could walk away from football or any other thing that would have me back there that case. And I wasn't planning on going uh, to play football. And when the NFL didn't drive me, when I said, look, you know, I'll take a chance if maybe if I play quarterback and when they didn't, I said, no big deal. It's your issue. Uh, and then I Canada came down that, that said, okay, I'll play five years. And then I want to, what I considered myself live my life <laughs> and with the family and my marriage with, with my wife and sort of build our family and, and, and move on with there 
which opened up a whole avenue of things that, that happened in my life, you know, after, after football. So the doors of opportunity presented themselves and you just walked through after your career and took yeah. advantage of, of whatever yeah. life offered you at that point. And can you now talk about that? So you became an investor. Did you work for an investor? Well, no, it's funny. So I, I do, I do a whole lot of things. I, I, I left and there was somebody who was interested in, in, in shopping mall manager. And so I ended up working for John Deere for about eight years. And I said, now, do you want the ironic thing? A guy who lives in the ghetto in Portsmouth, Ohio, as far as projects coming out of there, not knowing anything about farming, gets a job with John Deere selling consumer products and farm equipment and working within the stores that, that, that you did. And it was a wonderful experience. It says, I go to the Mennonites in Elmira and they, the, oh, <laughs> here's a different guy selling a combine. And they, it was funny. It was funny. It was always hilarious to me after the fact but it was really down to earth and good stuff that I learned. And what happened from there, um, one year when Ronnie Lancaster, who was, who was doing the television, they asked me to come in and sort of pick up 10 of the games and I ended up doing broadcasting for one year. And then from there, I went to work for, um, uh, that's where I met uh, one of the other players I played against who working with the investors group at the time uh, and had me go and make that move. And I made that move and was there for 30 years. Between uh, um, advisor, mid manager, and senior manager, or lease manager of an office uh, in that career, and just raised my family, took care of the things that I needed to get them through school, and that was kind of it. Now I kind of do some part time work working for Ford and uh, as a coach with with stores and stuff like that, just to keep some busyness going on. And that's very exciting because you meet a lot of good people in that process. Yeah. And what, what I love in your documentary is your wife talks about being American, being born in America and then moving to Canada and choosing to, to be Canadian and stay in Canada. And yeah. it's such a beautiful story that you have and, and such a journey. And as we segue into the end of our conversation, I just want to ask you about your foundation and the work that you're doing and your motivational speaking, first of all, but yeah the lessons learned from professional sport and your career and everything that you've been through in your life, what are the biggest takeaways from professional sport that you were able to apply, whether it be John Deere, whether it be whatever you yeah. did, what were the biggest lessons that you learned that you were able to apply to your life after football and the work that you do and your continued pursuit of personal and professional excellence? I, th I think it, 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 all, it all heads back to my my mom uh, and the avenue of love and respect for others and have others respect you based off of what you can do or hope that they would respect you for what you do and that the, the caring to give back. And I think the, the avenue is that what I've learned over the years as people have in, entered into my life, um, special people from the time I was in high school to the time uh, I've, I've, I'm at, right now with my kids and my family and my grandkids, um, all those impacts have come back from the starting point with my mom and the attitude that she had about love and caring and things. And for me in sport, and that's the foundation we, 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 that I work with, uh, thanks to some great people in Toledo, is, is, is based off of uh, an attitude of undefeated spirit that you don't give up. You don't quit. You know, you do the best you can and you deal with the results after that. You know, you do the best you can and keep going. 
and I remember talking to someone, uh, one of the big speakers that I used to listen to was man a few times, Les Brown. He said, don't let somebody's opinion of, of you become your reality. You know, and, and that's what I try to tell kids, especially the African-American kids or Canadian kids in regards to where they are and the attitude uh, about an undefeated spirit as we, we use as a, a, a driving point for most people. And they say, well, what does that mean, undefeated spirit? It says, you don't quit. You just keep driving forward. And then one day, when that's over, you deal with whatever you have to deal that you, when you finish. Uh, and so you, you prepare for that. So uh, I, I think uh, all of those things are great lessons as I go into the things. And one of the other day, I don't know what it was, but I got a, I got up and I heard something and I put on the DVD again, you know, it's funny that, that you go back and they say, wow, did that all happen? You know, <laughs> you know, cause down where you are, what, what, what goes on. And I, I, I am thrilled with the lessons that I've learned uh, over this last point. And, and, you know, some of the pitfalls and things that you run into uh, with life and then you overcome them and then they, then you go on and, and move on there. So I, I've been totally blessed by what has happened in my life and it has been very good for me to share with my kids and share with my grandkids and the people that I know I love and care about. How do you feel in your heart being the inspiration behind some of the most amazing quarterbacks to ever come out of the CFL? When you look at Warren Moon, <laughs> Warren Moon and Damon Allen and Condridge Holloway and Tracy Ham and all of these amazing quarterbacks that came up and mm-hmm. gave the CFL a chance. You know, in particular, Moon, you think of his career. You think Oof. of Damon Allen playing 25 years in the, in the CFL. What a stud. What, what yeah. an amazing quarterback. But um, you paved the way and you showed what was possible. But at the same time, the um, CFL had a beautiful spirit about itself in, in bringing on anybody. And you look at current day, you look at the CFL having um bringing people from europe and all over the world giving people an opportunity to play their game you know yeah and covid sucks and it sucks that the cfl was canceled this year and um the cfl was is such a beautiful part of um canadian culture so there's so much depth to my question but i guess i want to start um just before we close off the show i just want to start with how does it feel in your heart to be such a mentor and um, such an inspiration to quarterbacks like Damon Allen and Warren Moon and all those uh, quarterbacks who followed in your footsteps? Well, I am, I am honored that somebody would put me in the same league with those guys that sort of doing it, but I do appreciate what you're saying because of what, what the, and this is all kudos to Canada and to the CFL that they would even take, uh, Bernie Custis many years ago before me and some other uh, before me and and because of success I had that everybody's vision opened up and it gave them a chance and even it wasn't necessarily so the CFL it was it was sort of like Conridge and 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 Steve Jones and some of these other guys heard that they could get a chance now to play in Canada and I think it, that that goes a lot to say about what Canada felt about a nation towards people of color and, and, and especially in that position that was not necessarily open to us earlier ones in regards to uh, playing in the NFL based on what they had. So it, it says a lot about Canada and I am very thankful. I'm thankful for what they have done for me. And, um, and I'm, I'm very happy to give back to, for that thankfulness and the things I've worked with in boards and, you know, nobody would ever known that, 
I was a chair of a board of directors for an art facility, <laughs> you know, and all the things that, that happened uh, in working within the community programs with the, the mayors and, and, and the people around. Uh, it's It's been, I never would have thought that from coming from Portsmouth and in and, a and, and town that, that was so tight with, with their mindset in some degrees and yet and still uh, projects and a single mom. I can only say, thank God, I've been truly blessed for what has happened in my life. That's such a beautiful story, Chuck. And um, to close the show off, and I don't want to be morbid here or anything, but you know, we <laughs> all we all will one day leave the earth, um, yeah. whenever that is. And when your time comes up and your card is called, um, what is it that you hope people will most remember you by? Um, just what my mother told me and taught me about love and compassion and, and commitment to, you know, life as a, as a whole and giving back to others, uh, and treating other people like you want to be treated and, uh, with respect and dignity. And, um, you know, that's all I can ask for. I think the legacy I can leave is through my kids and through my grandkids and they know. And, 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 and when I go, you look at them and you will see me. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, and Chuck, where can people find you on social media? So I know, I don't know how active you are on social media, but I know you have a website. So just share anybody listening to this episode. I'm going to put your documentary in the show notes. So hopefully anybody listening to this, I, I, mm. I never demand anything of my listeners, but I'm going to demand that they watch <laughs> your documentary um, because okay. it, our conversation just kind of is just a glimpse into your life, whereas the documentary really captures it visually uh, over a, a number of years. So, but where can people find you? Well, I don't, I don't do so social media, media very much. I have, I'm very limited on that. I just don't want to get into all the stuff. You know, I, I see it. I get people who are friends of mine and certain ones that I, I just communicate. I'm living, I'm doing well. Yeah. Uh, my kids and wife and them, they can do all that. Um, but generally speaking, uh, they can go on to uh, the information on my, my website if they want to send me something or ask a question. UndefeatedSpirit.com. Just okay. go on to UndefeatedSpirit.com, and then you'll find a, a roll of information in regards to Chucky Lee Foundation and what is happening within the foundation in the direction of what we're doing. We're doing, we're doing a very special thing right now. Uh, where we normally do something where it deals with the kids' educations back in Toledo and recognizing sports and stuff. That's been all wiped out. Now we decided this year that we were to do something a little bit different and recognize some of the people from Toledo who have been living through this pandemic, uh, first responders, young people, older people, and just put them on the website and recognize them uh, in regards to it and just say thank you very much for, for having to be able to support others who are going through this most difficult time. Uh, great, Chuck. And, and I would be ha more than happy if you ever want, uh, I could easily record an episode with some of those people just to share their experiences, uh, okay. to, to just share their story and then create that audio clip for you to put on your website to hear their story. So if you have somebody that you want me to interview to share their story, then I'm more than happy to do that and support your, your cause in whatever way that I can. Well, what, what is going to happen is uh, <clears throat> if you do that, we're, we're just doing some things with the website now 
uh, as we begin to sort of put together. So when you give me the information of um, of how people are going to watch this process, yeah. uh, I can get this passed on to them uh, who are in Toledo and uh, they will probably follow up with you based off of that happen. Well, I'm just say, okay, here's a podcast. Go look at this, and there's information, et cetera. Okay, so, great. and we'll see how it works out. Okay. okay? Yeah, let's do that. So, uh, I'm going to close off the show, Chuck. Uh, and I just deeply want to thank you again. Like, this is a great birthday present to me, but also yeah. um, such a, a privilege to be able to speak to you and to to try to. Um, you really capture the essence of who you are, what you represent and, and what you believe in and what you value most. So um, thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much and all the best to what you're doing in the future with this. So keep up the great work. Yeah. Thanks, Chuck. So just stay on the line. I'm just going to close off the show and then we'll just say goodbye. So everybody, thank you very much for tuning into this episode with Chuck Ely. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Vaseline.